Hey guys, welcome to Crime, the rest is history. Before moving on to today's episode, I would suggest everybody to listen to the disclaimer. So guys, today's episode is taken from the following following website, Jack the Ripper 1888 by Richard Johns. So guys, let's not wait any more time and move on to today's episode. So guys, from this episode, as my previous two episodes were just the beginning of the Whitechapel murderers, but today is the first conical victim who was none other than Mary Nichols, who was murdered on 31st August 1888. So let's not waste any more time and let's begin. At around 3.40 a.m. on August 31st 1888, a carter named Charles Cross was making his way to work along Buckstow, a narrow, clobbed Whitechapel Street that was lined on one side by dark imposing warehouse buildings and on the other by a row of two-story houses. As Cross approached the looming bulk of the 1876 boat school that dominated and still dominates the western end of Bucks Row, he noticed a dark bundle lying in a gateway on the left side of the street. Like so many of the district's alleyways and passageways, street lightning in Bucks Row was minimal. So at first, Cross would not be sure what exactly the bundle was. It looked something like a discarded Napoleon or so thinking that it might prove useful for his job, Cross went to inspect it. Charles Cross finds the body. But as he drew closer, he realized it was in fact the prawn form of a woman who was either dead or drunk. As Cross stood, Rooted to the spot and unsure of what to do next, he heard footsteps behind him. Turning, he saw another carter, Robert Paul, walking towards him. Come, let look over here, Cross called. There's a woman lying on the pavement. The two men stepped gingerly over the road and stooped down over her. She was lying on her back, her legs straight out, and her skirts were raised almost over her waist. Charles Cross reached out and touched her face, which was warm, and her hands, which were cold and limp. I believe she's dead, he observed. Robert Paul, meanwhile, placed his hand on the woman's chest and thought he felt a slight movement. Think she's breathing! he said. But she's very little if she is. Paul suggested that they sit the woman up, but Cross refused to touch her again, so deciding, perhaps somewhat callously, that they were late for work and had done as much as they could, they pulled her skirt down to her knees to cover her decency and set off for her their respective places of employment agreeing to tell the first policeman they encountered on their find. But neither man 
had noticed in the pitch darkness of Buck's row was that the woman's throat had been slashed so savagely that her head had been almost cut from her body. P.C. Nile arrives at the scene. That discovery was made by a beat officer police constable, John Nile, who turned into Buck's row and proceeded to walk past the Broad School shortly after Cross and Paul had left the scene. There was not a soul about, he later told the inquest into the woman's death. I had been around there half an hour previously and saw no one then. I was on the right side, but when I noticed a figure lying in the street, oh, it was dark at time. I examined the body by the aid of my lamp and noticed blood woozing from a wound in the throat. She was lying on her back and with her clothes disarranged. I felt her warm, which was quite warm for the joints upwards. Her eyes were wide open. Her bonnet was off and had her lying her side. As Neil stooped down over the body, he noticed P.C. John Tain passing the end of the street and flashed his Latin to attract his attention. Here's a woman to her throat cut, he called his approaching colleague. Run at once for the doctor lean. P.C. Tain goes for reinforcement. As Tain hurried off to fetch the medic, P.C. Main, who had been alerted by Cross and Paul, arrived at the scene. Nile sent him to bring reinforcements and asked him to fetch the police ambulance. Dr. Blaine pronounces life extinct. When Dr. Lean arrived at around 4 a.m., he carried out a curiosity examination of the body and nothing that the severity of the wounds to the throat pronounced life extinct. On closer examination, he also observed that the deceased body and legs were still warm, although her hands and wrists were quite cold. This led him to summarize that she could not have been dead for more than a half an hour. In fact, this observation by doctors suggests that the murderer may well have been still been at the scene when Charles Cross came strolling along Buck's Row on his way to work. As Lean went about his grim business, news of the murder was beginning to filter through the immediate neighborhood. The Winstrop Street Horse Slaughters in adjacent to Winstrop Street, there stood a horse slaughter's yard where three slaughtermen, Harry Tompkins, James Mumford, and Charles Britton, had been working throughout the night. They had heard nothing and knew nothing of the murder until informed of it by P.C. Thane. As he passed their premises and rode to fetch Dr. Lane, they had gone around to view the body and remained at the scene until the woman was removed to the mortuary. Though the three men would later find themselves under suspicion and were integrated separately by the police before being eliminated as suspects. What the night watchman saw. This, they were joined at the murder site by Patrick Marlowe Show, a night watchman who was working at the nearby sewer works. Although he did confess that he sometimes dozed off on the duty, he was emphatic that he had been awake between 3 a.m. 
and 4 a.m. And then he had not seen or heard anything suspicious. But at around 20 minutes to 5 o'clock, a passing stranger had told him, Hey, watchman, old man, I believe somebody is murdered on the street. And he immediately went around to Buck's room. The police appeared to have been made attempts to trace the Marshall's mystery informant, but their inquiries proved unsuccessful. The discovery at the mortuary. Lewin orders the body removal. Dr. Lewin was by now becoming a little disconcerted at the number of sightseers that were arriving at the scene and he ordered that the body to be removed to the mortuary and where he would make a further examination. Tain and Nile duly lifted the body onto the polar's ambulance in reality a little more than a wooden handcraft. Her clothes were soaked in blood. As they did so, Tain noticed that the back of the woman's clothing was soaked with blood with he presumed had run down from the neck wound. He also observed a mass of congenital blood underneath the body, which was around 6 inches in diameter and which had begun to run towards the gutter. Has the murder been committed elsewhere? The relatively small amount of blood found at the scene culped over the fact that no one in the vicinity had heard a sound would by the end of the day led to speculation that the murder had been carried out elsewhere and the body is simply dumped where it was found. As the Times informed its readers, It seemed difficult to believe that a woman received the death wounds there. If the woman was murdered on the spot, where the body was found, it is possible to believe she would have not been aroused the neighborhood by her screaming. Buxro being a street tenanted all down to one side by a respectable class of people? This theory was given some consideration at the subsequent inquest into the woman's death, but the coroner was quick to dismiss in its summoning up. The conditions of the body appeared to be proved, consequently that the deceased was killed on the exact spot in which she was found. There was not a trace of blood elsewhere, except at the spot where her neck was lying, this circumstances being sufficient to justify the assumption that the injuries to the throat were committed when the woman was on the ground, whistled the state of her clothing, and absence of any blood about her legs suggested that the abnormal injuries were inflicted with whistles and she was still in the same position. Inspector Splatling's Discovery Splatling headed around to the mortuary in nearby Old Montague Street, which was in reality a little more than a brick shed, and there began taking down a description of the deceased. At first, he noticed only the neck wounds previously noted by Dr. Lean, but on closer inspection, he discovered something that had let far more eluded everyone. Beneath her blood-stained clothing, a deep clash ran all over way along the woman's abdomen. She had been disembowelled. 
Splatling sent immediately for Dr. Leans in order that he might comment on the newly discovered injuries. But before the medic had arrived and could carry out more detailed inspection, the two Sinil workhouse purpose, Robert Mann and James Hattelfitz, stripped the body of its clothing and proceeded to wash it down, dumping the garments in an untidy pile in the mortuary yard. The coroner would later criticize the police for allowing this to happen, whereas the police were adamant that they had given instructions that the body was not to be disturbed until Lean had conducted a full detailed postmortem examination. The discovery at the mortuary. The police canvassed the district. At first, the police had no idea who the victim was, so they began conversing the area in an attempt to discover her identity. Soon, several women had come forward and identified as a woman known as Polly, who had been living at a nearby lodging house at number 18 Troll Street, Lambeth Connection. Meanwhile, Inspector Splatling had noticed the mark of Lambeth Workhouse upon her petticoats, and later that day, a resident of the workhouse, Mary Ann Monk, was brought to the mortuary and shown the victim's body. She immediately recognized the victim as Mary Nichols, a fellow resident at the workhouse up until May 1888. Mary Nichols' last night, Mary or Polly Nichols, was a 43-year-old prostitute who had begun the morning of her death drinking in the flying pan pub on the corner of Troll Street, where she was seen at 12.30 a.m. From there, she had walked along Troll Street and a little the worse for drink and had tried to get a bed in a lodging house at number 18 Troll Street, but she didn't have the required four pence, so the deputy keeper turned her away. I'll soon get my dose money, she told him as she left. See what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing. Evidently, she intended to resort to prostitution to raise the necessary money and considered that the bonnet would be irresistible to draw the customer. Her belief may not have been ill-founded, for she seems to have been had a reasonable success. The last sighting. The last person to see her alive, apart from the murderer, was her good friend, Mrs. Emmy Holliden, who met her at 2.30 a.m. outside a grocery shop at the junction of Marbon Street and Whitechapel Road. Mary was obviously drunk and she was leaning against the wall. Emmy Holden tried to persuade her to return to the lodging house, but Nicholas refused boasting that she had made her lodging house money three times over but had spent it and she was off she said to make it one last time it won't be long before i'm back she told her friend and so saying staggered unsteadily off into the night into the riper's clutches at some stage in the next hour and fifteen minutes mary nichols would meet her murderer and then go with him to the dark gateway towards the top of Buck's Row. There he would suddenly collapse his hand across her mouth and probably affricate her and by strangulation erase her onto the ground and there cut her throat with a strong bladed knife. 
no one heard a thing and despite the fact that several people were either sleeping lightly or laying awake in premises that either adjoined or stood opposite the site none of them would hear a thing or even be aware of the final movements of Polly Nichols, not Mr. Pukres, the manager of Isaac Watchruff that stood on the opposite side of the street, directly across from the murder site, not his wife who spent a restless night and who may well have been pacing up and down their bedroom, the window of which looked over at the gateway when the murder occurred, not Mrs. Emma Green who was by her own admission a light sleeper, but who had slept on undisturbed until awoken by the police in the aftermath of the discovery of the body. Not the creeper of the blood's broad school, the towering walls of which still gaze down on the now-vanished site of the murder, the only remnant in the wind city from that long-ago night. Not even the police constable, who had been on the duty at the gate of the Great Eastern Railway Yard, some fifty yards from the where the body was found. The murderer's likely escape. The killer had committed his crime with ruthless and silent efficiency, and had then melted unseen and undetected into the night. He had probably skirted the broad school into the Wernshop Street and dived down one of the narrow passageways that headed out onto the busy Whitechapel Road. Here he could lose himself within the crowds that thronged in, even at that early hour. As the coroner observed upon his servings at the inquest, it seems astonishing at first thought that the culprit would have escaped detention, for there must be have been marks of blood about his person, if, however, blood was principally on his hand and presence of so many slaughterhouses in neighborhood would make the frequency of his spot familiar with blood-stained clothes and hands, and his appearance might in that way may have been failed to attract attentions while he passed from Box Rose into the twilight into Whitechapel Road and was lost sight of in, in the morning's market traffic. Mary Nichols' husband views her body. Meanwhile, the police had also been new busy tracing relatives of the deceased and had located her father, Edward Walker, as well as her estranged husband, John Nichols. In the early hours of the 1st of September, John Nichols was taken to the old Montague Street workhouse to view his wife's body. Genuinely distressed by what he saw, he shook his head disbelievingly and whispered to her, I forgive you as you are for what you have been to me. Thursday, 6th September 1888, Mary Nicole's body was removed from the mortuary on Thursday, 1888, 6th September, and was taken to the undertaker in a Hanbury Street. Great secrecy was maintained concerning the arrangements for her funeral, which took place later that same day in order to keep the curious crowds 
at bay. However, things did not go quite according to the plan. As due to the late arrival of the Monio's news of the impending funeral spread around the neighborhood and people began to make their way to Hambury Street in order to view the coffin and read the inscription on the plate, the morning advertiser carried a full report on the funeral in its edition of Friday, 7th September, 1888. The funeral of an unfortunate woman Mary Ann Nichols, who was murdered in Buxrow early on the Friday last, took place yesterday. The arrangements of a very simple character. The time at which the cottage was to start was kept a profound secret and a rust was preterated in order to get the body out of mortuary, where it had slain since the day of the murder. A pair host closed heavis was observed making its way down Hambury streets, and the crowds, which numbered more some thousands, made way for it to it go along the old Montague Street, but instead of doing so, it passed on to the Whitechapel Road and doubling back entered the mortuary back by the back gate, which is situated in the champions court. No one was near besides the undertaker and his man, and when the remains placed in a polished alum coffin bearing a plate with an inscription, Mary Ann Nichols, aged 42, died August 31, 1888, was removed to the Rias and driven to the Hanbury Street, there to await the mourners. A Strange Coincidence there was a strange coincidence about the funeral of Mary Nichols. As mentioned in the morning advertiser article, her body was removed from the mortuary viva to the back gate, which was located in a Chapman's court. From here, the coffin was taken to the undertaker premises, which were seated in Hanbury Streets. Two days later, on 8th September 1888, Jack the Riper would claim the life of his next victim. Annie Chapman, whose body would be found in the backyard of the house in Hanbury Street. Buried in the City of London Cemetery, Mary Nichols was buried at the City of London Cemetery, Alidus Brook Road, Manor Park, London, E12 5DQ. Although her final resting place no longer exists, the cemetery authorities do maintain a memorial plague to her in the cemetery's guardian of resemblance to which a regular stream of visitors make their way each year to pay their respects and spend a few moments in quiet contemplation. Many of the visitors leave flowers and coins on the plague. The coins are permanently in the resemblance of the fact that she lacked the four pence for her bed on the day of her murder, and in so doing, they ensure that Mary Nichols, murdered on August 31st, 1888, is not forgotten. So guys, this is the episode of Jack the Rival, the very first canonical victim, Mary Ann Nichols. So guys, I did get a request stating that all the colloquial victims timelines is being requested. So I will be making an episode to just brief you guys about all the victims of the Whitechapel murders and their timeline in the end of the season. So guys, until then, the next episode, this is Crime the...
the rest is history and this is your host lavnia zeus adios